opening up episode 219 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Cruisin'. It's from the band The Ape Men. It's from their album Seven Plus Inches of Love. You can find them at the-apemen.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for the podcast Monster Kid Radio, the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, and producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. Now, it's appropriate that the Ape Men are introducing this episode, and you're going to get to hear that song in its entirety at the end of the podcast. But it's appropriate because we are covering another one of the Planet of the Apes films. Longtime listeners know that this is a franchise that I had almost no experience with whatsoever. And while it does get a little outside of the typical Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse, I think it's relevant. I think it's something that definitely deserves some coverage here on Monster Kid Radio, and I wanted to have somebody be my guide as I go to the Planet of the Apes, and that guide is Scott Morris. So Scott is a dear friend of mine. I've been podcasting with him for years over at 1951 Down Place. Even before that podcast, before this podcast, we were collaborating together on various projects, and I'm excited to visit this franchise for the very first time. Now, Scott has a lot of experience with this franchise. He loves the Planet of the Apes movies, so I couldn't think of somebody better to show me the ins and outs and take me beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is the film we're covering this time around on the podcast. This movie came out in 1970, directed by Ted Post, and we're going to get into all the -the behind-the-scenes stuff later on in this episode. Now, just as a heads up, this was a first time viewing for me, but this particular episode isn't necessarily produced as if you've never seen the movie like I had never seen the movie before recording. So we do spoil a little bit. Now, we're going to spoil even more in a couple of days when we really get into the nitty-gritty and the behind-the-scenes and what happened at the end of the film. This time around, we're really talking more about why the movie got made, how the movie got made, how people got involved, that sort of thing. But there's still some spoilers, so just a heads up. Also, after that, I've got an announcement about an upcoming event, festival, convention, something happening later on this year, something that I've talked about here on the show in the past. I've got an update. I'll share that with you after Scott and I go beneath the Planet of the Apes, which we're going to do right after this. Listen, if you can imagine the furor of love, then maybe you'll hear these walls here, these windows answer. The Screaming Skull. The Screaming Skull is a motion picture magnificent in its horror. Therefore, this certificate assures burial service without cost to anyone in the audience who dies of fright while seeing The Screaming Skull. See the revisualization of a woman scorned. See the vengeful violence of the undead. The Screaming Skull. Starring Alex Nichol. See terror from the year 5000. And the Screaming Skull. Hey, comic book fans. I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. Hi, this is Jamie Alexander, the Asgardian warrior Sif from Thor. I went to Marvel 
They said, hey, sit down. We want to talk to you about this part. So what happened was I had a knife in my purse. I set the purse on the chair and it fell off and the knife fell out. And then they were like, oh, God, you really are Lady Stiff. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the one, the only, William Shatner. There's all these rumors out there that you're going to be in the next Star Trek film. Well, I'd like to be in it. You know, I don't want to be a gratuitous character. Like scrubbing me, the uh, windows on the things. Enterprise or something? There's a guy on the Chris wing. Pine. There's a guy on the wing. Chris Pine says there's a guy on the wing. Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is John Reese Davis. Hi, everyone. This is Summer Glau. Hi, this is Trisha Helfer, number six from Battlestar Galactica. Hey, this is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book Central, where comic books come to life. Excelsior! All the terror of the unknown reaches out from forgotten centuries. And a horror legend 2,000 years old comes alive as a hideous demon rises from the grave to bring a new high-end horror to the motion picture screen. The Vampire and the Ballerina. No one is safe from this monster of the night, this creature from the crypt of the living dead who stalks the countryside in search of victims for his insatiable bloodlust. The Vampire and the Ballerina. Into the evil domain of the Vampire King comes a company of beautiful dancers. And the most desirable of them all is the Ballerina. Helpless in the grip of his satanic power that brings everlasting enslavement to her soul. The scream has never reached such heights of fright, such soul-shivering suspense, such heart-stopping horror. You will remember for always the startling, haunting motion picture. The Vampire and the Ballerina. The Planet of the Apes was only the beginning. What lies beneath may be the end. The only good human is a dead human. In Can a planet long endure half ape, half human? You'll know the terrifying answer when apes and humans meet head on beneath the planet of the apes in the atomic rubble of New York. The guerrilla war machine is on the march. Human mutants strike back with new frightening weapons of the mind. 20th Century Fox presents Beneath the Planet of the Apes with James Franciscus, Maurice Evans, Tim Hunter, Linda Harrison, and Charlton Heston as Taylor. Can a planet long endure half ape, half human? The answer lies beneath the planet of the apes. Rated G. I am continuing my journey on the planet of the apes with my guide, if he's not too busy working on his General Ursus cosplay costume, Scott Morris. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. You about to get your shovel so we can go uh, beneath the planet of the apes? <laughs> Do I get the shovel because the guy who didn't have the shovel didn't make it very far in the movie? 
<laughs> that's a good point. Well, actually, nobody makes it very far in the movie, but that's another story. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's James Francis makes it about 90 minutes longer than the other guys. So. True. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So we are going to continue the Apes saga with Beneath the Planet of the Apes came out in 1970. Scott is such a huge fan of this franchise, so I knew that he had to be my guide as I watched these movies for the very first time. I just watched my Blu-ray of this Last night, in fact, before recording, and whew, wow, I almost wish I didn't know there were other movies, other sequels, because I am coming to this with just a little bit of knowledge of knowing that they do continue, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but this one has a very definitive end. And that was by design. They didn't want to make sequels to this one, especially the star of the film. He wanted this to end. Yeah, uh, Charlton Heston did not want to come back. Uh, and, you know, I, I got the impression that the sequeling of this, sequeling, is that a verb? The, the making the sequel of this movie, it wasn't really intended from the beginning. 20th Century Fox, they weren't doing sequels. This was before Star Wars. It wasn't like sci-fi was a really big deal and they did a bunch of series of these big prestige pictures. Well, if you look back at films older than this time period, if there was sequels, it was usually just B-movies. They weren't right. making sequels of big, huge, popular films like they do today. And no one was uttering the words franchise. Absolutely not. But franchise they got. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, after the events of this movie, they continued. <laughs> I don't know how. Huh. It's going to kill me until we do the third film. You know that, right? <laughs> it's it's really funny when I'm sitting here and it's like, I know exactly how they go to the next one, but I'm not telling you. <laughs> oh, you're a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to know. You should experience it like I did. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've got the Blu-ray set here. I could skip ahead. I could watch the documentary Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I could do all of that, but nope, I'm going to wait. I'm going to do these one at a time right before I record with Scott. Before we get into any of this, though, Scott... How have you been? What are you up to these days? Uh, what's going on with Disney Indiana? We've been covering all of the big Disney films for this summer. Uh, we talked about uh, Age of Ultron, and we talked about the incredible Pixar film Inside Out. Really looking forward to Ant-Man coming out and talking about it. And then we've got a couple of big Disney trips to start talking about on our show. We're going to Disneyland, and then later this year, we're going on a Disney cruise. Right on, man. Now, so this episode's going to be going out in mid-July. So, listeners, if you're not listening to Disney Indiana, you got to follow along with Scott and his wife, Tracy. One of my favorite Disney shows out there, period. And, I mean, I'm the monster kid. And I'm talking about a Disney show? Come on. You got to check this thing out. Of course, before you go listen to Scott and Tracy, we've got to talk with Scott about Beneath the Planet of the Apes and his history with the franchise and my journey now, we talked a little bit about this during the first time we talked about Planet of the Apes with Scott after I had a chance to see it on the big screen for the first time. But, Scott, you've been a fan of these films for years. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, I have yet to see any of these films on a big screen, even though that is about to change. Oh, yeah? In October, if anyone's near um, central Indiana, the historic Artcraft Theater, October 9th and 10th, is doing Sci-Fright Frenzy. Six movies over the course of the weekend, and one of the movies they're showing is the original Planet of the Apes. Nice. Oh, man, you got to let me know how it goes. They're also showing Godzilla. The original? The original, but I don't know if it's the English or the Japanese version. Okay. War of the Worlds. 
Ooh. A movie that you and I have talked about here on the show, Gila. <laughs> whoa, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not, Not the, the original. No. This, oh. th- this is the remake. <laughs> I got all excited there for a second. Uh, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Forbidden Planet, Planet of the Apes, and Night of the Living Dead. Wow. So I am really looking forward to finally getting to see one of the Apes movies on the big screen. One of those things is not like the other. <laughs> True. <laughs> are, are you going to skip Gila? Is that when you're going to go get a meal or something? Well, it's it plays Saturday at 1 o'clock, so it's the first movie on Saturday. Oh, what, okay. What they that do is sense. they play two of these movies will be on Friday night, and the other four will be on Saturday. Well, that sounds fun. If anybody's in the area, go track down Scott. He'll be the guy in the Ursus cosplay costume, like I mentioned. <laughs> so go look for him. <laughs> yeah, Ursus is probably one of my favorite characters. I wish he was in the film more. He's only in this one. He's only in this movie, period. Yes. He doesn't turn up anywhere else. No. See, I knew you liked Ursus, but I'm watching this movie and I'm like, okay, when does Ursus get a bunch of stuff to do? And he really doesn't. No. He's not in the movie as much as I would have thought for somebody. I mean, you call him your favorite character. I knew he was your favorite guy. Yes, but I just, I love the rubble rousing scene, the very beginning where he's just firing up everybody. Well, the gorillas at least. So. Yeah. <laughs> But before we get into the actual characters, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how this movie actually came to be? Yes, please. Let's talk a little bit about that. Now, I did just a touch of research. I did not skip ahead because I do not want to spoil the other movies. And, of course, when you're reading something about a movie that came out in the 70s, there's not a spoiler alert in a, in a reference book. So I didn't want to get too far ahead of the game. But there is that 20-minute documentary on the Blu-ray. So I did watch that. But you've got a lot more knowledge. I mean, you're, you're the apes guy. Well, one of the things that led to this film was the problems that 20th Century Fox was having at the time. They had just put out a couple of musicals in the late 60s, uh, Hello, Dolly, and Star, that both flopped. I'd never heard of Star, but I had heard of Hello, Dolly, and I didn't realize it was a flop. Yes, it was originally a flop at the time, and also Tora, Tora, Tora didn't do that well for the studio either, which was right before this. Really? See, and they said that. I thought Tor 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 was kind of a big deal as well, but, you know, I'm coming to it <laughs> as a guy who worked at a video store and saw these things on the video shop all the time. I didn't realize it was also kind of a flop. Well, you've got to remember, you've got to put yourself in the time frame of what the world was like in the late 60s. You had the protests for the Vietnam War, so that probably turned off war pictures. Mm, good point. You also had uh, folk music and you had, you know, stuff like Woodstock and going on. So big musicals probably weren't in the society's big things they wanted to do. So that hurt them as well. Now, these films later on, once home video and stuff came about, become more popular. But at the time, they, they were just hitting culture at the wrong time. That, well, that makes sense. Yeah. One of the their biggest hits recently was Planet of the Apes. It did... Uh, a lot more money than they expected that it would ever do. Up until this point, sci-fi wasn't like a big, big deal. It was a uh, kiddie fair, right? Oh, yeah. It was okay. B-movie Saturday afternoon for the kids. So they decided that if the audiences liked Planet of the Apes, let's give them more apes. When the first movie was made, there was no thought for a sequel. There was no plans. So there's no hooks or anything that you know, in a movie today, you know, the last five minutes of the movie is setting up the sequel. 
Sure. Supposed credit sequence. Exactly. Thanks, Marvel. You know? <laughs> but we have nothing like that now. So they first went and they got some of the people that did the original screenplays. You get you go back to Pierre Boulle, who wrote the original book, and you mm-hmm. go back to Rod Serling and, yeah. and try to come up with a treatment for the second film. And one of the ideas that Boulle came up with was Planet of the Men. That sounds fascinating. It does, actually. It would have followed Taylor going off into the Forbidden Zone. I've heard two different interpretations to this point. One in the story, he would have found another an encampment of humans that could talk, or there would have been a second spaceship that would have been more had more people on it that crashed looking for him, and it would have been enough to be a society of people that were on the same intellectual level as he was, so he could talk and he would then become the leader of those people and end up fighting against the apes to try to retake the Earth. That sounds amazing. I mean, it sounds very action-packed and very Charlton Heston-like, but yeah, that didn't happen. And, and one of the endings that they talk about in from the Alpha to the Omega, the making of the Beneath the Planet of the Apes, would have had the humans taking the Earth back and basically enslaving the apes once again. And there would have been a scene where all of these humans would have been at a circus type of thing. And you would have seen an orangutan in an enclosure that they were kind of trying to get him to talk because it still wasn't that far past when you know, the apes were talking and they were trying to get him to say his name. And at the end of the film, you know, they would have, the camera would have zoomed in and he would have said his name was Zaius. And that would have been the, the twist ending for the film if they went with the planet of the men. I love that idea. I really do. Like there's this alternate reality where all these coulda, shoulda, woulda movies exist, like the Eric Stoltz version of Back to the Future. I would love to find the alternate reality where that movie actually happened and then see it. Another one that I would like to have seen, it would have been an early draft of what we ended up getting. Mm-hmm. You would have had a, a war between the humans and the apes, and there was an atom bomb involved. It wasn't a planet-killing atom bomb in this version. <laughs> Spoiler! <laughs> <laughs> and in this version, you would have had Taylor and Nova escaping before the bomb goes off, and they end up integrating society back, and the humans and the apes become one society and you would have had this scene of sort of a utopian version. You would have seen the schools where you would have seen human and ape child learning together and people working together and everything. The camera would have pulled back and you would have seen this bird or a dove flying off and then the dove getting shot down and the camera would come back down and you would have seen an irradiated gorilla coming out of the forbidden zone. And that would have been the end of the film. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> I just like that visual thought. I just think that would have been a, a an interesting twist ending of the film as well. So what is it about 70s sci-fi that was just so wonky? I mean, that's that's cool. <laughs> that had been some great imagery. I mean, that would have been fun to watch. Once they finally went through what Peter Boole had written and they rejected that idea, they contacted Paul Dean who was a British uh, <laughs> author or British writer. I'm giggling because I know where this is going. And uh, if this was 1951 down place, this would be my James Bond connection because he also wrote Goldfinger. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so I was wondering if you're going to bring that up. 
But which uh, was a hit, which oh, was a success. Oh yeah, it was uh, very much a success. He also wrote uh, Murder on the Orient Express, and he also went on to write the sequels to the Planet of the Apes films. Oh, did he? He was still attached to the project. He yeah. wasn't involved with the first one, right? No, he was not involved with the first one. Okay. He ended up writing this, and one of the things that uh, I discovered while doing some research about him uh, is that, and they also mentioned this on that documentary, he was sort of obsessed or disturbed, I'm not sure which is the right word, about the nuclear bombing at the end of World War II. So much so to the point that he wrote a book of poems called <laughs> Quake, 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 A Leaden Treasury of the English Verse. Now, this book, when it was originally published, and I would love to get my hands on a copy of it, because it was illustrated by Edward Gorey. <laughs> and he wrote all of these basically apocalyptic nuclear poems based on real poems that he had changed a little bit. One of my favorites being... Ring a ring of neutrons, a pocket pull of positrons, a fission, a fission, we all fall down. So think Weird Al Yankovic's Christmas at Ground Zero, but not funny. But not funny. No, not <laughs> no. at all. You know, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch some heavy water. They mixed it with the dairy milk and killed my youngest daughter. That's <laughs> just disturbing. <laughs> His whole book is poems like this. And this is the man that wrote Beneath the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Wow. And for those that you have that have seen the film are already knowing, okay, that explains the whole cult at the end of this film. Yeah, that, ex that explains like the last 20, 30 minutes. They got him to write a treatment for Beneath the Planet of the Apes. They couldn't get the original director uh, from Planet of uh, the Apes because he was off making Patton, another one of my favorite movies. I was going to say, it's another one of your favorites, right? I yes. mean, I've heard you talk about Patton quite a bit. We should start the Patton cast. <laughs> So he, he wasn't available. So they got, uh, not, I can't remember who they originally hired because he quit soon after. Oh, it didn't go straight to Ted Post? No, it did not go straight to Ted Post because right after they had hired the director, 20th Century Fox, being in the financial issues that we talked about, cut the budget. Basically, Planet of the Apes had a $6 million budget. Beneath the Planet of the Apes was cut to $3 million. And this director said, I can't do it for that, and left. <laughs> okay. So then they brought in Ted Post, who had done television and was probably better suited for a lower-budget movie because he's used to shooting on lower budgets. Well, he was a TV guy. I mean, he yep. did a lot of television. You know, he was used to shooting fast and quick and getting things done, that sort of thing. When I was looking at his filmography, I was a little surprised that, you know, he didn't have more film in his pocket. He seemed to be known as a TV guy, at least at the time. Yep. I mean, he would direct things like Magnum Force and things like that, which, you know, it's not a, a fast and dirty movie, but still. But it's after Beneath the Planet of the Apes. That's true. So then they wanted to bring back Charlton Heston. Who's <laughs> like, no. No. He, uh, he, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> you know, this was back in the time when, they're, like we said earlier, they're not making sequels. So an actor at the time, he made the movie. He wanted to go off and do something else. He gave everything to that character. He didn't see it as something that would be continuing. So he had no interest in coming back whatsoever. I'd imagine if this was something done today, they would have signed him to three movies to begin with. And that, he wouldn't have a choice. Yeah, he would be a multi-picture deal or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
But no, nothing like that. He was not under contract to do anything else. He said that, nope, I don't want to be in it. And basically, the head of the studio, uh, Zanuck, went and, and tried to convince him to come back, said that we need you in this movie. So at first, Charlton Heston said, all right, I'll do it, but you only get me for a week. You've got to kill me right away. And this is how much I want, and I'm going to donate it all to charity. Well, as the script went on and on or in development, they decided that they were going to have Heston come in at the beginning, disappear, and then show back up at the end of the film. But no one told Heston this. And once he found out, since no one had told him, he was the thought was he was upset about it. Mm-hmm. So Zanuck was really worried that they'd lost Heston. So he wrote him this long letter saying, hey, I stuck my neck out for you guys for Planet of the Apes. You know, I was the one that was pushing this with the studio. I got it made. I need a favor. I need you to come back. Well, Heston gets this and just no one had told him that they were going to have him at the beginning at the end. And he was still for him. He was still in the same number of shooting days. So it didn't matter to him. So it ended up being a non-issue, but he still wanted to be killed. I think they kind of overkilled him. <laughs> well, there's there's a reason why they, they ended up overkilling it. <laughs> I mean, Zanuck, it was his father that was running the studio, 20th Century Fox. And when they ended up trying to, to force them to, to, to cut the budget and to do everything else, and they ended up firing Zanuck during this production. He fired his son, and his son basically said, you know, as he was leaving, he he said, uh, you know, kill them all. Just end it. There's a famous story that I saw in, I can't remember if it was in the documentary for Planet of the Apes or in that Alpha and Omega documentary for this movie. But when Zanet gets fired, he's asked to leave the studio a lot, and he goes out to the parking lot. And he can't leave right away because they've already got the painters painting his name out of the spot. And he had to wait for them to move before he could back his car out and leave. <laughs> Man, knowing what we know now, knowing what Zanuck would go on to do, I can't imagine firing him from a movie like this. His production company went on to do a little movie called Jaws. You might have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he hitched himself to Spielberg. and uh, it was It was his firing that kind of was the impetus to let's just kill them all. Let's end this. Let's make sure that they can't do any more sequels. Which Charlton Heston was fine with because he wanted to be killed at the end of the film anyway because he didn't want to be asked back for any more sequels. I never got the impression, based on my limited amount of research, that he was unhappy in that it was – I mean we know it was a physically taxing production, especially when he's running around with the two other guys in Planet of the Apes. We know that. They shot in Arizona during the summer. Ridiculous. I mean I get it. But I never got the impression that he like griped about the shooting conditions. I never – Got that vibe? I've never read that either. I think yeah. he was the type of actor that, okay, I've done that. I don't want to do it again. And it right. would have been if they had asked him to come back and do sequels to any of his films. I right. think I mean, that was the opinion that he had. It was a different time. I mean, today, sure. I mean, it's probably expected. You know, if you didn't already sign the three-picture deal that one's coming if you were in a very successful science fiction film. But, yeah, back then... This movie kind of broke the mold a little bit. This whole franchise kind of broke the mold because this was it. This was the franchise before Star Wars. Mm-hmm. 
So this was setting a lot of the groundwork. So nobody knew. So yeah, I just don't think he wanted to do a sequel just because he didn't do sequels. Not that he didn't have a good time. And he was in the the documentary that uh, was on the AMC network for the 30th anniversary of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, Charlton Heston's interviewed, and he has very glowing things to say about his time, and he seems to be very happy about and, and proud of his work. So, mm-hmm. well, and rightly so. I mean, I feel like the '70s was like peak time for Heston, especially his sci-fi part of his career, right? Especially for stuff that we would care about here, specifically on Monster Kid Radio. I know it's a little outside of our wheelhouse, but it's Charlton Heston, it's Omega yeah. Man, it's Silent Green, it's Planet of the Apes, you know. And he was really at the peak. He was the man. Yep. I think he kind of knew it a little bit, but I never got like the sense of ego. I got this sense of he worked hard to get to where he was. He worked hard on the movies he worked on. He threw himself into them. Now he wants to do something new. Yeah, he's just very professional. So he comes back, but he's not the only returning human actor. We got Linda Harrison coming back, who gets a lot more screen time, but not much more to do. She gets a lot more dialogue. <laughs> well, that's not saying much. <laughs> uh, I, I did not expect the movie to go there. I didn't expect that to happen. And you also have uh, Kim Hunter returning as Zira. Right. You do get a few returning ape actors, but not Roddy. He was actually directing his own movie and wasn't available. I don't know what movie he was working on, but he was directing another movie and was not available. Even though he shows up in flashback, because at the beginning of the film, it's like you rewound the Planet of the Apes about 10 minutes, and you watch the last 10 minutes of the film again. And so he shows up there, but he's technically not in the movie. There's no new film of him, even though Cornelius is in the film. They have a different actor as Cornelius. Uh, David Watson played him, right? And he does a very good Roddy McDowell imitation. I... uh... Maybe it's my modern eyes and knowing that I can go back and watch Planet of the Apes right beforehand because I have it on Blu-ray True. now. I don't know. I feel like he tried to bring something to the role while not sipping too far outside of the box. I prefer McDowell. Oh, I do too. I do too. And we'll get him back next film. I don't understand how the world is. Well, <laughs> spoiler. Uh, Maurice Evans also returns as Dr. Zayas. Who seems kind of defeated in this movie. I think... He's of the opinion that the gorillas could take over and he doesn't want a coup. He doesn't want insurrection. So he's more to the point of he's just going to let them do what they want to do within reason. I mean, he's not going to stand up to them for the betterment of the ape culture. I I get that vibe, but I also get this impression that. The end of Planet of the Apes didn't end well for him, that he was put in his place. Some uncomfortable truths were revealed that he was trying to not allow to get out to certain people, that he's been kind of humanized a little bit more, humbled. True. And then, of course, you've got Ursus coming along to make it worse. But For me, you don't want to go back and think of too much of stuff like that, because if you open up that, shouldn't Zira and Cornelius be in jail? Because they were going to be tried for heresy when they got back, and you don't. Well, there, yeah, there's a lot here. Again, it's a different time. The last time people saw Planet of the Apes was a year ago. You know, when when this movie came out, so it wasn't like 
they watched it on Blu-ray and then rushed out to watch Beneath. I was like, hey, what about this continuity thing? Because there are some continuity things. Oh, there's a huge continuity problem <laughs> yeah. with the dates. <laughs> if you go back and look at the time that Heston's ship lands, and then there's another ship that had been sent out to to find him, crash lands at the same place, but their ship lands 27, 27 or 23 years earlier if you look at the dates. So there was a little continuity problem. Just a little bit. <laughs> I mean, there's some real continuity issues. And then there are some vague kind of storytelling continuity things to me that kind of bugged me a little bit. They're talking about how Franciscus, uh, is, as Brand, is looking for Taylor, but he never mentions the names of the other guys. Nope. There was a, there was a, a crew of four <laughs> in the first film. And only once did they reference that there was more than one human. And that was when Zira mentioned Taylor and his two friends. Well, there's the whole issue of, if you go back to the first film, they were sending out Taylor and his crew. They knew they weren't coming back because of this time. They were going to go the speed of light and they were going to go on an, an S curve or something in the time difference. The people that sent them knew they weren't coming back. Why right. did they send a rescue ship? Yeah. But you don't want to think of that too hard. <laughs> then it's no, like, you can't. <laughs> well, I briefly mentioned him. James Franciscus is our male human lead as Brent. I really liked him. I think a few times he was doing a Heston impersonation, but I really liked him. He looks like a a smaller version of, of Heston. <laughs> True. Yeah, like you left Heston in the dryer a little too long, you get James Franciscus. <laughs> <laughs> Tell, tell me that's something you came up with and not like an MST3K thing. <laughs> no, that's something I came up with. Because that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> now, he was real excited about doing this because he had been doing a lot of shows. You know, he's all, I think he was, in a, do he was a doctor or something, and but he didn't get to show off his physique. He wasn't doing action movies. And he was in very good shape. He played tennis all the time. And so he was thrilled that he was going to get to basically run around in a loincloth. Show off a little bit, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't hurt that you get to, you know, hang out with a similarly dressed Linda Harrison. True. And, you know, he was the action guy. It was fun. You know, I, I can imagine if, if I had that, you know, I'd go out and play Planet of the Apes for a little while. It'd be fun. I do like him as well. One issue, you know, if you, what we were just talking about the timeline and why did they send another ship? I mean, they had to do that because they weren't going to get Heston for the full movie. Sure. If you were going to get Heston for the full movie, you would have had him going off into the Forbidden Zone and maybe stumbling upon these mutants that they stumble upon or something else. You wouldn't have the need for this character. But once you get past, you know, you're not going to have Heston. I thought Franciscus did a really good job. Sure. No, I had no problem following along. I mean, I, I was behind him. I was rooting for him. For about 30 minutes of the movie, it's basically a retelling of the first movie. He's going through some of the similar yeah. things that you see in the first movie, you know, seeing Ape City for the first time, learning the fact that the apes can talk and that he shouldn't be talking and he gets captured and he escapes and he gets captured again and he escapes. And until he and Nova finally make it into the Forbidden Zone, it seems like a rehash of the first movie to me. No, I, I get that impression as well. It's like, okay, we've got to revisit all these things just in case people forgot. And, you know, we, that's what worked in the first one. Let's do it again. Yep. People liked Zira. People liked Cornelius. And rightly so. Oh, yeah. And I, I do love the scene where 
Franciscus or Brent is taken by Nova to them and he's been shot. So he's bleeding a little bit and, um, Zira starts working on him. You know, I, I I'm a trained veterinarian, <laughs> but then when Dr. Zayas comes through, she has to pretend that she's the one bleeding and that Cornelius hit her. That just, <laughs> it's horrible to laugh about it. Yes. But it's but, so unbelievable. <laughs> Cornelius hit me because I was, I didn't, what was it? She didn't really get all enthusiastic at the big assembly earlier. So right. To put her in her place. Yep. <laughs> and, and the fact that she's the one that comes up with that story. Well, and it's just like, Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Of course he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And Cornelius's character, I don't think would hurt a fly. So <laughs> no, <laughs> especially if he was played by Roddy McDowell. There's no way. I mean, right. even in this, you know, with David Watson in the role. Oh well. <laughs> but I was I was glad to see them back because I I like the interaction between those two characters. I like Zira. I like Cornelius. I like the fact that they show them in their day to day. You know, before. They meet Brent. It just seems like they're doing you know, their day-to-day stuff. They're kind of arguing about what happened and how they should handle it and everything, just like normal couples would do. I said this when we talked about Planet of the Apes. I find them kind of cute, the way they interact with each other in Planet. I, I really do. I mean, they're, I'd watch like a half-hour, hour-long weekly dramedy about <laughs> Zira and Cornelius' life, you know? I mean, they're adorable together. And it was nice to kind of revisit that here the magic's not as strong, but it's still fun. Mm-hmm. I would have hung out with them even longer. Now, in Planet, were they married at that point? I can't remember. I don't think they were, were they? Yes, they were married. Oh, they were married? They okay. were married, yep. Because I, I know they say they married in this one. I, I thought they weren't. Either way. Yep, they're they're married. In fact, uh, she announces that she's pregnant in this film. That's right. Not that it matters. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Now, this is the last time we see Zira and Cornelius, right? Or do they turn up in the other? Because I thought somebody was telling me they did not appear in the other films. <laughs> Scott's silence speaks <laughs> a lot. Well, that's good to know. That's, that's encouraging. Yeah. Because I do like them a lot. With Roddy coming back, he plays a different character, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> you really don't want to say, do you? I really don't want to say. <laughs> He eventually plays a different character. Yeah, I know that he plays a different ape character. I just assumed it. You know what? We're getting way ahead of ourselves. When we, when we do that one, we'll, we'll cover it. Fine. <laughs> You've told me not to tell you anything. <laughs> Since when did you start listening to me? <laughs> oh, man. Do we want to talk a little bit more about your boy? Oh, we've got to talk about um, James Gregory is... As Ursus. Yeah, he's not in the film that much. But every time he's on the screen, your attention is drawn right to him. What is it about him that grabs you? I love the speech that he gives at the beginning of the film to rile up all of the gorillas doing this warmongering speech, you know, talking about how, you know, they're going to go out into the forbidden zone. They're going to find the whatever creatures are out there that are stealing our food. Just he's so motivating and captivating i just i I really like that character and then there's the scene where it's just him and uh, dr zayas in the steam room (laughs) (laughs) of all the things that i didn't expect in this movie the thing i did not expect the most or the least or whatever was the sauna scene (laughs) 
but it's, apes hanging out in the sauna. Yep. Sure, of course they are. Why not? But they're talking about, you know, this upcoming trip into the Forbidden Zone to, to start this invasion. The way that Gregory's character is just, he's basically already won over Dr. Zayas. He's got Zayas in the palm of his hand, and he knows it. Just, I really like that. I wish he was used more. I, I would like to have seen more of him in this leadership as the general. He's dangerous, though, man. Oh, yes. <laughs> the only thing that counts in the end is power. Mm-hmm. Naked, merciless force. I mean, who says that? Just, oh, man, I, lo- I do like him a lot, too. I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to ask you to defend him because I didn't like him. I liked him as well. I think he had the potential to be a very interesting character. I would have loved to have seen more screen time with him. Yep. Unfortunately, once the battles start and once he's leading the army out there, once they get past the protesters, he doesn't really do a whole lot. And I love that he's about to just <laughs> open fire on the protesters until Zayas is like, you know. You don't want martyrs. <laughs> <laughs> probably not the best thing to do here, buddy. <laughs> All right. Deal deal with it quietly. <laughs> Yeah, he he had already pulled out his gun. He was going to take them all out. Who was going to play Ursus to begin with? Oh, that was going to be Orson Welles. Can you imagine Orson Welles in that role? In this day and age, when I think Orson Welles, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's the brain from Pinky and the Brain. That's it's, it's all I hear now. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> so when you say Orson Welles as Ursus, I see the brain as Ursus now. <laughs> What are we going to do tonight, Dr. Zayas? <laughs> oh, man. Same thing we do every night. Try to take over the Forbidden Zone. <laughs> but no, I, I don't I don't know if I would have liked Orson Welles as Xerxes. Oh, he said actors should not have to wear masks, so right. we can turn it down. Now, I think James, which I don't have a lot of experience with James Gregory, but I do think he did a good job acting through that makeup. The only other thing that I really know him for is Barney Miller. Right. Which is totally not. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally different character. <laughs> yes. But he also did a lot of television. That's sort of, well, you know, it's the 70s. It seems like TV is where it was at for a lot of people. Yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with him, uh, but I thought, as Ursus, he's great. Now, this isn't the first time we saw the gorilla makeup, but I feel like this is where the stereotypical image of the gorilla makeup from Planet of the Apes comes from. Because I, I will no longer think of the gorillas without thinking Ursus. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't think you can. In the first movie, the gorillas are more used as muscle and right. the hunters and also menial tasks. They're cleaning out the cages and that kind of stuff. You don't see the war machine in the first movie that you see here. So you get the gorillas not only barbaric, but they, they're in uniforms, which really that I, I love the, the look of the gorillas in the uniforms. I think it's really cool mm-hmm. riding on the horseback. If I had action figures from this film, I'd want a whole bunch of gorillas. I'd set them up on my desk at work and not get anything done. Yep. I'd want them on horseback. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of horses, a little horse play set, maybe a, a couple of nets, you know, to, to ride with. Just they look great. They're the, they're the stormtroopers, but they have so much more personality. Yep. And I love the look of their tools. I mean, there's, there's a scene that shows them in training. And I love their training regimen that they go through. And I love the cages that they, they have the humans in, not only the stationary ones, but the, like the stagecoach type. I love that look. Just, it's really, really nice, really neat. I, I like it. No, the production design on these movies so far 
is amazing. And I know in the first one, originally, it was going to be a much more advanced civilization. And because of budget and other reasons, they decided to scale it back. I think it works to its benefit. Well, yeah. The original book, you know, the apes are in a modern society of 1968. And they just didn't have the money to do that. So let's make them look like they're turn of the century or whatever. And it works so well. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it looks really cool. It's a very unique look. I dig it quite a bit. There are some bits and pieces that show maybe a little bit more advanced technology than you would assume they had. Uh, You see a picture of Zira and Cornelius, like on a desk in their home and beneath the Planet of the Apes. So if they're able to develop photographs, why are they still living in these kind of mud-like huts? But either way, it still looks really cool. I like that environment. I'd go to a theme park based on Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I would too. I think it'd be a blast. I just wouldn't get involved in the, you know, the human hunting (laughs) excitement ride because I'm good with that. Well, I I could do the hunting. I don't know if I'd want it to be in the training where they... Well, that's true. (laughs) These two have already been marked for target practice. Sorry, doctor. What? No. (laughs) Look at my head. It's unique. Please. No. (laughs) I can talk. I can talk. (laughs) But that goes back to what you were saying earlier about it does feel like a, a recap of what happened before, because you've got to go through all of that to, you know, hopefully tap into the money that oh, the yeah. first film brought in by bringing in these familiar elements. But man, they throw the book out the window and go completely unique towards the end with the mutants. Yes. When, when we re-enter the forbidden zone at about the 40 minute mark, this movie is completely different than anything we've seen so far in the apes universe. And I want to use this point to, Tell listeners to come back in a couple of days because I think this is a great cliffhanger moment. Come back on Thursday for more of this. <laughs> was that a decent cliffhanger? I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of liked it when we were recording, but when I was editing, it just felt, you know what? I just hope it was enough to bring everybody back here in a couple of days when Scott and I continue our journey beneath the planet of the apes. You know, I said this to him off mic repeatedly. Thank you, Scott, for taking me along under your, I'd say wing, but apes don't have wings. So... I don't know, leading me through the Planet of the Apes, taking me there. I, it's just awesome to do this series of films with your brother. So thank you so much. And I think the listeners take it. On the anniversary of the night they burn Lavinia Morley, many strange and sinister dreams are experienced. But are they dreams? Or are they the signs of the curse of the Crimson Altar? How are these wild parties and an antique dealer investigating witchcraft connected with this house of horrifying secrets? Get out. Go while you can. What mysteries live within these ancient walls? Who is Robert Manning looking for? Why is he in danger? When will he find the hidden truth? I am Lavinia. Mother of the Mysteries, Keeper of the Black Secret. Lavinia's influence has spanned the centuries, maintained her innocence up to the very end. They didn't believe her and burned her at the stake. Many people have died mysteriously, horribly, but there's always been a link between those who burned Lavinia and those who died. My brother stayed here, didn't he? My brother Peter. Tell me what happened to him! Curse of the Crimson Altar brings together the two masters of horror, Boris Karloff 
Christopher Lee. Mark Eden in his most powerful performance. I know there's something wrong going up in that lodge, and if you're not going to help me, I'm going to do it myself. Barbara Steele as Lavinia, Queen of Terror. Michael Goff as her unwilling slave. And introducing Virginia Wetherow, guest star Rupert Davies, Curse of the Crimson Altar. What ghostly legend was he caught up in? Who was the living link with Lavinia? Why was he tormented by these ghoulish nightmares? Time. When did this frightening fantasy become startling reality? This is a very deep cut. Do you know it looks as though you've been stabbed? I think I was. The 20th annual H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival is happening later this year in October, October 2nd through the 4th, 2015, at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon. Guest of honor is author Charles Strauss, and there's going to be a number of other guests and amazing panelists, and that's where my announcement comes in. I've been named one of the panelists, one of the guests at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. I'm stoked. What does this mean for Monster Kid Radio? Well... I don't go to any of these events without my portable recorder. So you know I'm going to be recording there. And a number of Monster Kid Radio regulars typically show up at this thing. I'm specifically thinking about Chris McMillan, because I know I'm not going to be able to go the entire weekend without running into Chris. Of course, I don't want to speak for him or anybody else. I'm just excited that I'm going to be there as a panelist and a guest. I don't know what panels I'm going to be on yet, but typically I try to record every one of the panels as well and share that on the show. So that'll be coming as well. Something for everybody to look forward to, or maybe just me. Either way, check out the HP Lovecraft Film Festival if you're in the Portland, Oregon area. You can get out here at the beginning of October. Go to the website at hplfilmfestivalpdx.com or look them up on Kickstarter because there is a Kickstarter campaign going right now with some sweet rewards. They've already hit their goal, so everything's guaranteed to happen. Now they're just looking for their stretches and Really, you can get some awesome swag along the way, even if you're not in the area. It's there. Go check it out. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Again, big thanks to Scott for being part of this week's episode. Some big thanks to everybody for listening to the show, downloading the show, listening to us, courtesy of their podcast catcher. If you use iTunes, I'd love to ask for an honest review if you haven't already given us one. If you use us on Stitcher or some other podcast directory, you know, a shout out here and there. It's always helpful. Share us on Facebook or retweet us. Talk us up on one of your favorite message boards. The more listeners, the more the merrier. That's what it's all about, is growing our tribe of classic monster movie lovers, right? If you want to tell anybody about the show, I think one of the best places to send them is our website, monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. Between episodes, there are links to every single episode from our past here on the website. You can subscribe to our Monster Rally Checkpoint monthly e-newsletter here. You can also find our link to our Facebook group, our link to our Patreon page, a link to every single song that's appeared here on the show in the past, and our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. If you have anything that you'd like to talk about on the show about this episode or any of the previous 219, well, that's how you do it. And I know it works because I got an email from a listener that I'm going to sit on until Thursday when we come back to further talk about Beneath the Planet of the Apes with Scott Morris. We'll call that another tease.
And speaking of teases, I want to go ahead and mention another project that I've got cooking. Mentioned it in a few places already. The Dorado Films podcast is coming. Episode one is in its final stages of post-production. Dorado Films is your home for European gold from the silver screen. This is a film company that I do some work with. I've introduced movies for them. I've done a lot of work around the office. I do digital poster restoration. It's a blast. I have so much fun working with Dorado and learning about Euro horror, Euro crime, spaghetti westerns, giallo, sword and sandal films. The depth of the Dorado Films library is, well, deep. And the Dorado Films Podcast will come out about once a month, and each episode will focus on one title from the Dorado Films Library. Head over to doradofilms.com slash podcast, or look up the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. There is an episode zero, and I put the audio from the trailer from the first film we're going to cover in the Dorado Films Podcast. One of my personal favorites, one that we've talked about here on the show in the past, the fantastic Argoman, superhero, sexy spy action from Europe. I'm excited to get that show off the ground. And I think that's about it. I want to turn the air conditioner back on, which means I need to stop recording. So before I do that, I want to remind everybody that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Cruisin'. That belongs to the band The Ape Men. You can find them at their website the-apemen.com The album is 7 Plus Inches of Love It's a great album with some great music Like the song you're about to hear Talk to everybody in a couple of days